right. Welcome, everyone. We are back. As you may know, we like to talk and go long, and we thought that it was probably a good idea to stop, have you digest all of this information that we had in our hour and a half of, uh, you know, actually talking, and then maybe we can actually have an episode separate from this so that we can discuss what we just talked about. And specifically, there's a lot to cover with, like, the new Red Scare. And so... Um, yeah, we're back uh, this week with the actual discussion. <laughs> yeah, normally we, you know, we have prepared material and then we say we'll put like a 20 to 30 minute, you know, we'll sign off on 20 to 30 minutes at the end to kind of discuss the material. And this time we didn't even pretend like this was going to take 20 to 30 minutes. No. I mean, come on. Like, you guys heard the episodes. Come on. That's growth right there. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. we're, we're knowing ourselves. So yeah. <laughs> Oh man. Well, we have a we have a good discussion uh, all lined up for you. And so I guess like without further ado, Brian, like should we just get into it? Yeah, let's just do it. And we began the previous episode uh talking about the win the future contest, right? And yeah, crazy... that, that amazing, <laughs> amazing <laughs> yeah, like game show slash contest. Yeah, where you could uh, win a house <laughs> in a desolate California in suburb. A, in a no, uh, be the first. Yeah, it's an awesome prize when you get to be the first member of a neighborhood, right? Yeah. Like <laughs> definitely like something that you should aspire to. <laughs> you and your husband who has like intense medical needs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just just way far away from any sort of hospital or any human help and uh and how hilariously behind the scenes this was basically an op to send uh to, to like generate pro-capitalist messaging to like leaflet people in italy <laughs> to try <laughs> get them to not vote communists and I realized I kind of gave the suburbs a little bit of short shrift in there. I mean, we talk about, a lot about the suburbs and Mechanical Freak and things like that, but yeah. uh, we should have like a, a, a slightly, maybe take a little detour to have a slightly longer conversation about this, which is in this time period, this is when the suburbs begin to grow. Now, this is contrary to previous modes of American urban development, right? Typically, you know, housing builds around city cores because you're close to work right you're close to where money is you're close to services etc right and it's not until the creation of automobile infrastructure and you know uh the sort of post-war um you know money made available for housing via you know military service and things like that that all of a sudden the suburbs could come into existence now Hilariously, the suburbs were given a lot of excuses uh, for why they came into existence. The usual ones of like, this is just the American dream, which they would just yell at you over and over again. Uh, one of the funnier ones was it was uh, explained away as a, a method of nuclear dis defense. Right? <laughs> what? <laughs> so, yeah. Like, they're like, hey, um, if we cluster our you know large populations around these like urban centers, I mean somebody could just drop a bomb on it and uh you know kill like enormous amounts of our civilian population as we just did <laughs> in, in Nagasaki. like uh, this you is see what we did you wouldn't want that to happen to you right this is a classic bit of american psychology which is looking at something you just did and then being like what if somebody did that to us and then getting really <laughs> scared about it <laughs> 
<laughs> from slavery on this has been yeah. like a classic brain bug um <laughs> You know, and the nuclear defense thing was really funny because after the war, after World War II, people really were scared of nuclear weapons and like really did not, they, they were not popular, let's just say. And the idea of nuclear Armageddon, unlike today, where apparently we all just desperately want it, yeah. uh, <laughs> back then was considered something bad. Right. So you see, you see how politics shift over time, right? Back then, nuclear Armageddon destroyed every piece of life on Earth was considered a bad thing that you didn't want to happen versus today, a good thing that you desperately need to happen. Um, and so there was a program called Atoms for Peace at this time, like ATOMs for Peace, uh, that tried to create uh, civilian use for uh, nuclear energy and nuclear weapons. Um, they were the ones pushing the idea of all these nuclear power plants that were popping up everywhere that you have to have security clearances to get into. Yeah, that's just power generation. Don't worry about it, guys. Just power in the future. <laughs> Don't think too much about it, all right? Um, the uranium mining that we're putting on Indian reservations, more to come on that later, uh, that's just jobs programs. Uh, don't <laughs> worry the fact that everybody's dying at, like, 30 because their fucking, like, faces are falling apart. Um, you know, and w the crazier part of it was these nuclear weapons, maybe we can use them for civic projects. Like, you know that mountain that's in the way of our highway we're building? What if we just nuked it? And huh. so, so at one point, they came up with this grand scheme to build a highway uh, through, you know, the Western United States to California that was just going to be one straight road, which for a lot of reasons is a very bad idea. <laughs> but one reason is that there tends to be physical obstacles and they were just going to use nuclear weapons to like blow up the physical obstacles. Right. And all this was funded essentially by the federal government for the purposes of trying to make people come to grips with their nuclear future. Right. And to, you know, uh, stop being scared and learn to love the bomb, if you will. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, the name of Dr. Strangelove is chosen because it's a response to this giant propaganda push around, you know, nuclear power and stuff. And this idea of like the suburbs as nuclear defense was just another way of one at, you know, normalizing the idea of nuclear war <laughs> as an inevitability, inevitability <laughs> that you have to just prepare for, uh, as well as, you know, justifying a new housing policy, uh, that maybe has deeper, uh, reasons for existing. Now, a funny thing about the atoms for peace and the like normalizing nuclear war, my mom, who's a boomer, right, would have, you know, was a kid in the 50s and 60s going to school, used to go to a one room schoolhouse. I mean, this this is real little house of the prairie shit, but went to a one room schoolhouse in rural Indiana in the 1950s. And one time they had a uh, principal come in who was substituting uh, who was from the big city from Chicago. And uh, they were just there for the week while their principal was, I mean, who knows, right? Uh, getting lobotomized or something. <laughs> and uh, they did their atom bomb drill, right? Where they would get under their desk, do the duck and cover. I mean, that's not just a joke, right? They get under the desk yeah. with their hands over their yeah, heads yeah. to protect themselves from, <laughs> from a nuke. A, a 20,000 degree, uh, you, know, you know, 500 mile an hour shockwave. <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, <laughs> And hilariously, apparently the principal got on the little intercom and said, all right, we're doing the drill, duck and cover, get under your desk and pray they don't miss Chicago. And 
this uh people are upset about this in the community and not for reasons that you would get upset about it today where you'd be like is there some sort of underlying racial message yeah (laughs) they got upset because the actual joke was why even bother nuking this shitty town (laughs) (laughs) i mean it is it is literally like the response to 9-11 you know and like people in lubbock are like well you know first first the pentagon then then the twin towers next our our football game in lubbock (laughs) yeah and you know and the townsfolk were very bad because of uh the same reason just town pride like there's a lot to nuke in rural india yeah (laughs) (laughs) but i mean it's just the sort of mania that kind of existed at the time but again like i said something a little darker was maybe uh underneath that which i'll read this uh quote from william levitt so Le- William Levitt was the creator of what are called Levitt Towns, which are generally credited as being like some of the first like planned suburbs. Uh, also, all of them sundown communities, no blacks allowed. Um, mm, shocker. Yeah, <laughs> you'll be surprised to hear. Um, <laughs> but he had this great quote that he told the press one time, and this is in 1948. No man who owns his own house and a lot can be a communist. He just has too much to do. And it got to the sort of point of, there actually was a politics to home building. Um, this idea of you turn every American into a little lord, right? A little lord and a little lady in their own yeah. you know, private estate. And that that will invest them in the capitalist enterprise, right? So here's from uh, historian Elaine Tyler May talking about this as well. Home ownership would lessen class consciousness among workers, who would set their sights toward the middle-class ideal. The family home would be the place where a man could display his success through the accumulation of consumer goods. Women could reap rewards for domesticity by surrounding themselves with commodities. They would remain content as housewives because appliances could ease their burdens. For both men and women, home ownership would reinforce aspirations for upward mobility and diminish the potential for social unrest. And... Again, it was getting to this point that was like actually very explicit in federal circles. Uh, you know, Nixon was a big promoter of this idea as senator and then pre- vice president and then president was that if you gave Americans homes, it would solve the urban crisis that we talk about so much. As uh, the mayor of St. Louis said at the time, communism loves slums, you know, and by creating the suburbs, we are fighting communism, right? And it was this idea that people would just get lost in the commodity purchasing, right? They would get lost in the caring about their home values and stuff like that. They'd become too invested in capitalism to ever fight against it. And luckily, right. uh, if you've ever dealt with homeowners today, boy, were they proven wrong, right, guys? <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, the suburbs... It really isn't just your imagination or just uh, the Hollywood movie, The Burbs, or anything like that. The suburbs really are a critical node in the creation of the modern, psychotic American. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's Big not time. just there. And, uh, and it's just interesting to see that, like, they thought about that stuff, you know? Like, they, they, there was some thought went into that. <laughs> Thank you.
I'm glad you could come down to see my fallout shelter. Just finished painting it last night. Looks like a nice job, Wall. You know, this shelter is a real good idea. If we should ever have a nuclear war, we could get a heavy fallout even though we were not anywhere near the target area. So Ruth and I got to thinking about it and we figured we'd rather be prepared than sorry. Now, to go from maybe the suburbs to the urban, uh, more metropolitan world, right? The more cosmopolitan world of the city. Um, we talked a little bit about the art world. And while as, I, while as I feel our discussion of the suburbs is probably not particularly controversial, having had this conversation on Twitter with many people in the past, I know the art world conversation we had yeah. uh, is maybe a touch controversial. So, but, you know, uh what what what's going on with abstract expressionism uh what <laughs> let, let's get into it <laughs> yeah yeah and i th- i think it is like a really good discussion to have because it i think brings up a lot of different questions about you know the purpose of art L- looking at art in an actual class context too uh, i think like when you like look at art criticism it's not just the uh, genre of art itself but it's where it was birthed in the first place right like um I think a lot of um, Orthodox Marxists and, uh, you know, even people like, you know, like Mao Zedong, they would actually analyze art and see it from a materialist lens where they'll identify that, you know, the art that comes out of, you know, like Western countries or the global north, uh, especially like the United States, for instance, um, is what they would consider bourgeois art. Right, because it is art that is made for a particular class of people, and because it's sold on the open market, means that the highest bidder basically wins the art, which means that art is going to be made for those that kind of class of people, right? Which then, if those are the people who actually control the art market, right, and that that's like how you can actually make a living being an artist, you'd imagine naturally this there's going to be a cycle, no matter if it's like reactions against capitalism or consumerism or you know um all of these all of these ideas the ultimate uh you know point of i think like the uh the case of it being bourgeois art is that the people who are buying it are you know the ruling class Mm -hmm. are are the people who um and the people who are financing it it's like big money right where if you take the actual um you know market economy out of the picture of the art world which is uh, what the soviet union did and that's where what like socialist realism was doing it. It's trying to make it more for the proletarian and for the people, right? And now I think people can argue that, oh, well, that, you know, is a that that can just be used by the state to, you know, push their own message, which is yeah. true. It's not necessarily wrong, right? But um, th- that it doesn't involve a market economy in that too. So you're going to get different, um, you know, pieces of art there. Now, with that said. Well, yeah, I, yeah, sorry, go. I think yeah. to just kind of like piggyback on that point for a second, I, I think that you bring up something really important that I just want to put an exclamation part, point next to, which is, you know, in the Soviet Union, in Communist China, in Cuba, right, they would hold uh, giant, uh, you know, uh, gatherings, committees, whatever, of artists, right, conventions of artists, right, where they would talk about, have intense discussions about the politics of art, right? Like, yeah. you know, everything from the politics of the images, if you're talking about paintings, you know, whatever, right. Visual art, right. To the politics of how it's created and form and things like that. I mean, they'd have open discussions about the fact that 
something created by humans has a political character. <laughs> we should discuss that, right? In the United States, as you were sort of mentioning, I mean, there's definitely a politics to it and stuff like that, but it's all obscured by the market, you know? Yep. And because we are taught to see the market as a neutral actor, we say, oh, if this one in the market, well, that's all there is to it. There, there's no political character to it. It's just the thing that people like, right? Right. And, yeah. And you know, and I think it's important to see. Uh, I think people in the West like to point to stuff like in the Soviet Union, the you know, the state basically saying socialist realism rocks, everything else blows, or whatever. Um, the official socialism rocks <laughs> bill. I think people point to that and they go, look, this is, this just shows a totalitarian state, like, you know, putting its thumb on the scale in every venue. Uh, Not like here where the market does that for us. (laughs) (laughs) And I just think it's important to maybe drop that distinction a little. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. I mean, because at the end of the day, um, you know, and this goes beyond just art, the idea that the market is a neutral arbiter that, you know, actually like defies all politics and um, an ideology where it's actually um, directly serving a particular uh, viewpoint and ideology. Right. Um, And it's just more abstracted by being on the so-called like open market, right? Which really mm-hmm. just means that it's like the highest bidder gets to, you know, dictate what um, what sells and what doesn't, right? Um, that's the way that, you know, art is uh, either deemed a success or failure. Um, and so it, it is, view, viewing it from that point, like, of course, places like Cuba, you know, China, uh, the USSR, they'll have these discussions because it, it really does, like you said, Brian, like come from a human place. It comes from a place of context. Um, and it's like, I think important to criticize where um, actual ideas and influence of actual works of art do get generated. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the art world, essentially there, it's not like they were just doing this because, Oh, like we should have alternative education and we should think about more than just science, right? Like we should go outside and socialize at recess you know, the states, whether they're um, communist, socialist, or, you know, like uh, capitalist empires, um, the art world is really important uh, for them uh, because it has extreme cultural influence and influences the next generation, influences the current culture today, how we actually see our lives in the world. That's why movie like Hollywood, you know, played such a big role, like we said, um, in like the anti-communist movement. Um the state was very interested in that um but as well as uh paintings too right it, it is it's not only symbolizes but sets the t- sets the cultural uh temperature tone and attitude for uh you know where the society that you're living in in general right which is very very powerful it's not that's not something that you can just that is more powerful than just in like objective metrics um that's uh something that you can't just uh say to someone objectively and have them really like you know absorb it in the same way that like subjective stuff like art um can do to um you know a culture and you know that's why like the you know the role of institutions within empire like let's say you know the museum of modern art the met the Guggenheim, right? Like, um, you know, all of these art museums, um, 
are actually, you know, leveraged and used by the by, you know, let's say Empire to prop up certain ideas, right? Or certain um concepts that can only be communicated really or can be effectively communicated through um through art, right? Which I think is inherently because of that cultural pull, it's no surprise that I think, you know, the ruling class and the art world in an open market uh, or a market economy system, like in um, capitalist enterprise and empires, those two things would be tied, right? So the ruling class is like, has a heavy investment in the art world uh, because that's one, it's like what art is really made for in this economy. Mm-hmm. But two, it also, you know, it it has um, a powerful influence and you can really use that to elevate certain ideas. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I don't know. That's, that's, that's just kind of where, where it is. Yeah. And avant-garde has a downstream impact, right? Um, you know, if the avant-garde of art is considered Diego Rivera's like murals of working class figures or whatever, that inspires people downstream to make films about working class figures and stuff like that. I mean, the interest in cinema by, you know, the state and things like that by, you know, uh, people like you know uh mccarthy and things like that is that they understood that this is what the broad public is watching and how they're forming views about the world the interest in art was an understanding this is what the intelligentsia is imbibing this is how they're developing their views about the world and there is a relationship between these things um mm-hmm. The intelligentsia are the ones who are then going to promote certain films, promote certain books, you know, all this kind of stuff, right? You know, essentially they were looking for class buy-off, right? And this is what we talked about when, you know, we mentioned, uh, we quoted this art critic at the time, Clement Greenberg, who says, you know, prior to the rise of abstract expressionism, you know, the avant-garde had been abandoned by those to whom it actually belonged, our ruling class, Right, yeah. you know, yeah. and that the promotion of things like abstract expressionism was about reclaiming, you know, the cutting edge of the art world for the ruling class. Now, that brings us to an important question. I mean, the fact that the CIA put its thumb on the scale for abstract expressionism is, and I can't stress this enough, not up for debate. Like, no. that is a fact, right? This is not, yeah, <laughs> yeah. this is not speculation. Yeah, this is a, a fact. Now, the question is, what does that mean, right? Yeah. And I think this comes down to what I wrote in our notes that I think is kind of like what dumb internet arguments always come down to, which is, uh, is Jackson Pollock an op? Yeah, right? is he a CIA agent? Yeah, and... And I think this is where conversations frequently, particularly online, where you can't have like normal conversations with anybody. I think this is where the conversation breaks down. <laughs> yeah, totally agree. Because it's not like when when you have this like this question is so loaded on so many levels that it's almost the the question itself ends the conversation, right? Because really, we shouldn't like. The question shouldn't be about whether Jackson Pollock is a conscious 
like <laughs> men in black style CIA agent who is cynically like just like splattering paint on a canvas, right? To mm. to reimpose the ruling class's grip on the art world that was slipping away with like, you know, the like avant-garde movements in the middle of the 20th century, right? Like that uh, that's actually like completely separate from the actual point of why it's important to know that the CIA and the State Department, right? Like the Empire actually put their thumb on the scale to make abstract expressionism what it was, right? And to put it on the level of where it actually, uh, you know, became. And I think this goes into a larger point. Like forget just like Jackson Pollock, we're using him as an example, but like, you know, like this is just like one guy. Um, a lot of, this is a case for a lot of artists or really just a lot of people who, you know, work in the context of empire, right? Is like, you know, this style of abstract expressionism wasn't birthed by the state or by the CIA. They say I didn't, they weren't in a lab saying, oh, we need to create this style and um, no one is going to like it, but we're going to like force them via psyops to, you know, uh, to basically trick everyone into liking it. Uh, and uh, th- this is like fully just a vertically integrated thing that we do. Right. Um, I think to the contrary, a lot of these things and abstract expressionism included, it was already an art movement because remember, I think if our theory is true that, uh, you know, artists are inspired by other artists, right? And they're inspired by the culture that they actually live in and they take cues from that. If that is to be true, then abstract expressionism is actually very naturally occurring thing that you would probably see in the middle of the 20th century in the United States as an art movement. Mm. It's very centered around not necessarily, um, you know, direct uh you know messaging or showing like necessarily like objective humanity it's more of an individualist um abstract form where you can kind of see anything that you want to see in the art right Mm -hmm. which is very much counter to what socialist realism was which is actually depicting real working class people um in either like you know glorious situations or like depicting and a working class politics, and alike right you know with an open politics where yeah. abstract expressionism w- within its name is abstracting all of that right and it's saying no let's actually not introduce people to these concepts and instead let's have it just be about the inner self and whatever that person specifically interprets off of this painting right that is an art movement that is birthed you know, naturally, especially within a space of postmodern art, which is, you know, um, you know, reaction against like just basically either impressionistic art or, um, you know, art that uh, kind of directly depicts real people. Um, so that art movement is there. It's really the question is, is why did the CIA choose um, abstract expressionism as the winner? Right. Mm-hmm. Um and I think it goes to that point of that it is just very useful to to use that for their own purposes, right? Because, again, it's in the context of empire. So, you know, see, I could look at that and say, hey, let's just have because I guess actually circling back to what the art world is under capitalism is it is, again, driven by a market economy. So how do you pick the winner in a market economy? Well, you make it have a lot of value on the art market, right? Mm-hmm. It, to, for people to, um, for more art movements to get, actually gain steam, 
they have to be selling. So, you know, you inject the art market with a lot of money. You go into the MoMA and say, hey, you know, maybe you should hang up this Jackson Pollock painting here like mm-hmm. that. We can actually give you some, you know, endowment money if you do that. Right. And it's not in a very cynical, like, again, men in black way. It's, you know, like they're connected to these places. Right. It's like their buddy John walking down and say, hey, I, I like this piece. Like and, you know, by the way, this the, the state that I work for, they're they can, you know, put some money your way too. We like this art. You probably like this art too. Let's just do it, right? It's like a very straightforward um, transaction that I think everyone is necessarily like, you know, on board with. Yeah, I mean, you know, convincing MoMA to put up, you know, Jackson Pollock paintings is putting the sort of imprimatur of, you know, the culture makers of the art world, the taste makers of the art world on this movement right you know so you're buying legitimacy for abstract expressionism right at the same time you know maybe making the first few purchases right through i don't know a cia black fund right you know and all this kind of stuff you're setting prices i mean what we're seeing is exactly what happens with like nfts and things like that right which is you create a market by showing that a market exists right which requires Mm -hmm. just an initial investment and so doing you are then promoting that form of art because other artists are gonna see oh if i want to actually make money it's got to look it's got to be more this style right you know other galleries are seeing if i want to sell something it's got to be like this right so i mean this is how the market is sort of working to pick winners now because we are taught to see the market as this abstract thing we just say oh no that's just nature working itself out right but that's just direct democracy (laughs) yeah but as we know right the market is you know gigged and worked in a million different ways right and uh, in this case, it just so happens to be in this one particular way. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it sort of gets to the confusion, though, of, you know, to your point, abstract expressions have existed prior to this, right? Uh, presumably would have kept existing had the CIA never chosen it, right? Had never mm-hmm. put money behind it. But what would have its impact been on the art world? What would have its, you know, uh, notoriety been? Well, I mean... That, I guess, is just up for... I, we're never going to get to know that, right? We will well, know that's, because that's they the they right. elevated it high. But I think... So yeah. I think... But what, what can be in our... You know, what, what is valid for analysis is is why they were so gung-ho yeah. about promoting that specific one. There were a lot of different art movements out yeah. there. Um, there well, I think there's a lot of different art movements that, you know, might appear to be actually explicitly anti-capitalist that maybe the CIA and the State Department might want to promote as well, right? Like, it, it, it actually can get a little more complex than just having, like, free enterprise art being, like, the abstract expressionist thing. But, you know, even you know, vague critiques on consumerism and stuff can actually... Um, which is different than abstract expressionism, obviously, right? Like even like the pop art era, like with Andy Warhol yeah. and stuff, it, like you know, like that. By the way, the that FBI has kept a, a very large file on, you know. I mean, like mm-hmm. so when we talk about influence in the art world, it goes the other direction. Too, yeah, you know? yeah. They're willing sometimes to put their thumb on the scale in other directions. In other yeah. directions, exactly. Right. I mean, like there. So both like art that is deemed a threat to the state and also art that is deemed. Uh, something that is extremely beneficial. And so, you know, the state had no, um, really had no uh, illusions to the fact that some art is antithetical to, you know, the U.S. empire, right? And that 
probably they would prefer either without or to be co-opted, right? Um, and like, or not have those specific people like Warhol be the leaders of that, you know, art movement. Um, you know, so I think it begs the question for uh, abstract expressionism is why they saw a real winner um, to complement the brewing uh, Cold War that was happening. Yeah, and I think when you look through books like the Cultural Cold War and stuff like that, they go through this. I mean, the discussion amongst CIA officials and their friends in the art community is always about the idea that they're very excited that abstract expression is, is very specifically apolitical, you know, and they're from their perspective, right? Uh, and it's difficult, uh, it's difficultness in how to interpret it. It's non-figurativeness, which they talk about quite a bit. Uh, they see as specifically a positive because it's elitist, right? Like mm -hmm. this is, they like it because they know working class people won't like it right like yeah. and yeah. and i think this gets to the point about andy warhol and why the fbi was probably keeping a file on andy warhol <laughs> is that he was doing you know I, whatever your opinions on andy warhol's art or whatever he was doing as a conscious project the opposite which was basically saying what if the I mean, this is the 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 heart of pop art right which is what if the avant-garde actually is just popular what if it is just mainstream pop art what if i just took a bunch of campbell's soup cans and called it art and put it on a wall, right? You know, and this was antithetical to the project that had been built prior to this, yeah. right? Of like, no, we want the galleries to only be full of a certain type of person, you yeah. know, and that this maybe could potentially uh, undermine that. And I think that gets to the point of where elitism as a goal of um, political actors and of a ruling class. I mean, it's it's uh, it's a real force, right? Like part of capitalism is that it has to both obscure the hierarchy of relations, right? To try and claim some sort of like democratic or, you know, bootstrapping, um, you know, origin. But another part of it is to also explain to people, no, hierarchies are real and you have to respect them. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And the avant-garde is part of that. Right. And I think that, you know, the backlash for, let's say today, if we want to use a more modern example, like hipster culture, for instance, right? Uh, and like the <laughs> backlash against that in a way, I think that there are arguments for both sides on, you know, whether that specific culture of like gatekeeping, a lot of stuff are saying, oh, like name name, name like five of their songs or whatever, if you actually <laughs> know them, right? Like um, whether that's like annoying or not, it's kind of a separate question, but I think... You, you can like make a modern relationship to the fact that you know the reason why a lot of in popular culture and i think like amongst like you know the you know broader working class might have kind of frowned upon that is that it is and it is imposing a style of elitism in, a, in mm -hmm. a way right and uh stuff that you don't necessarily get or you have to understand or be in an in-group to know that is inherently what bourgeois art actually uh, creates, mm -hmm. right? It actually, it is a class signifier in a lot of ways. And it's a way to gatekeep people out of that, um, you know, club too. So art is no longer for the people by definition in that sense. If you actually can like look at something that is so abstract, like abstract expressionism and to, in order for you to understand, you have to understand specific um, you know, context and specifically gatekeep those facts to everyone else. You know, that is like a very actually direct 
uh, imposition of of class status and standing too. Yeah, and I think this gets to the point about the art world itself, which I think, uh, you know, me and Chewie talked a little bit about this on our uh, Cave Break Patreon episode about our problematic faves or whatever. But, yeah. you know, all art forms, music, you know, paintings, etc. right? We tend to try and view them outside of market relations as something that sits above it, right? It's the world. It, it exists in the world of like uh, the intellectual or some bullshit like that, <laughs> you know. Every we pretend as if everybody's doing it for the love of the game, as if we're not making things to buy and sell, and as if these aren't worlds that exist and are created by people, people who have class positions, who have political positions, etc. And the art world is really interesting because of how at the front of the stuff it is. Uh, for instance, in Munia's hometown of New York City, <laughs> the <laughs> number one event on the social calendar is the Met Gala, right? At the Metropolitan yep. Museum of Art. It is not the number one cultural event on the calendar because people are just so excited about art. <laughs> it, yeah. Is, yeah. it is there because that is where you can meet the who's who of the city. From both political leaders to bankers to celebrities, right? Uh, for instance, you know, I can't just walk into the Met Gala. <laughs> <laughs> yet, yet, yeah, yes. after after this podcast blows up, uh, you know, we're we're gonna change our tune a little bit, I think. And, exactly. Uh, oh, that's we're gonna change all of our opinions. We're gonna yeah, we're, we're gonna we're, re-edit <laughs> all these episodes and be like, you know what? <laughs> On second thought, this is all good. It'll, it'll um, be like shitty dubs. Like we'll be like, capitalism is good. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, it's it's interesting. I mean, if you were to say like, you know, well, how does this become this way at the Met? I mean, one thing you could do is go look at like their board of trustees, right? You know. Uh, oh my God! Yeah. Like <laughs> you know, when you look at trust, like the trustees emeritus at the Met, uh, David Koch and Henry Kissinger are trustees <laughs> emeritus, which means trustees for life, right? You know. Um, if you were to go look at the MoMA. Uh, and you look at its board of trustees, you'll find guys like Leon Black, who if you want to do something really fun, type Leon Black and then Jeffrey Epstein and hit search <laughs> on Google. Um, <laughs> Alice Tish, who is a very important from a very important New York family, you know, mm-hmm. very storied New York family. As well Especially as in the like- art world too. I mean, like the Tish uh, school, I mean New York's art art school is is tish yeah uh, you know and things like, like yeah. the the tish trust and stuff like that where do you think that money comes from you know like and then you know uh david rockefeller a lifetime trustee of the moma right and the thing is is that this is where you start to realize it is a small club and you're just not <laughs> right i mean david coke and david rockefeller would be at you know art events and board meetings together right the the scion of american liberalism and the scion of american conservatism uh together just hanging out talking art you know and it gets to the point of like what these things exist for and you know for a lot of nonprofits, uh and even a lot of corporate boards and things like that these are the gathering places where the ruling class meets and creates its class identity. Now, I don't mean that like, oh, we meet in the underground Legion of Doom lair. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. What I mean is 
This Get is that they, out of your head. This is actually the point of this is like it is actually not that deep of a of yeah. like a conspiracy yeah. or a stretch. It's not like, you know, the the cabal being in a dark room, like drafting up secret plans. It's actually very banal. Yeah, very banal and therefore more terrifying, actually. And yeah, it's they meet on these boards. They meet on these boards because, you know, being on the board of Met says something about who you are as a New Yorker, right? Yep. It says that you are you are one of the elite of the city, right? You know, if you're on the board of MoMA, you're rubbing shoulders with the like people who run New York City, right? The right. most important bankers, the most important politicians, right? You know, being on these boards is an important social signifier. And this is where these people get together. And I guarantee you at these meetings and at these tea par- or the little parties, cocktail parties, they're not talking art, you know, <laughs> like yeah. they're talking the things that matter to them, which is business, the political climate, you know, that little intro we put about how the ruling class is formed at the beginning of the previous episode. I mean, we put it there for a reason. It's distressed. This is how the this is how class identity is created. This is how mutual class interests are acknowledged. This is how class goals get formulated and how they get put into practice is at, you know, MoMA tea or MoMA cocktail parties. I keep saying tea parties like they're English, but MoMA cocktail (laughs) parties. Yeah. I mean, this is where these things happen. Um, You know, uh, I remember at Texas Tech at one point, uh, we were going to get a program uh, designed by EO Wilson for our honors program or whatever, which EO Wilson is a, harvard uh entomologist whose research is basically can be summed up as hey look ants go to war with one another uh therefore war is natural and we shouldn't <laughs> even try and like resist it in any yeah way. it's human right. nature yeah he's like a dumb evo psych guy um yeah. but anyways uh piece of shit uh but you know at one point he was going to have these honors programs designed around a curriculum he developed at various colleges around the country. And they chose places like Texas tech because they knew it'd be controversial to try and put it at say Columbia or something that would face resistance. And yeah. So, you know, we had this (laughs) idiot instructor uh, from tech or professor from tech who then went and bragged about this meeting he had because he was flown to New York to meet EO Wilson and some other people and discuss this this program right they met at david rockefeller's apartment in new york with david there who introduced eo wilson to everybody else right you know and i'm sure if this moron knew like who was in the room i'm sure a lot of other weirdos are in this fucking room with them and they're talking about this stupid honors program they want to put at texas tech right and this is one of these things that we talk about, like how the ruling class functions. It's like, this is how it functions. It is a old boys network. It is a tiny club that they all belong to. You know, David Rockefeller knows EO Wilson because they probably go to the Harvard club together in New York city. Yeah. Right. And he's into EO Wilson's work because of, you know, these little encounters they've had probably at cocktail parties and things like that. And it's like, this is ha- and the, now this is trickling down to Texas Tech developing an honors program built around sociobiology and Evo psych bullshit. And it's like this is how power actually functions on a day to day basis at the ruling class level. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know? 
And so, so as we kind of saw, you really just beautifully, you know, articulated is that like, you know, in this current system is the art world right now is like one of the arms of the ruling class at that point, right? Like it is one of the inst many institutions that they use for networking and for their own uh, purposes, right? Like it's controlled by that same club, right? That they got the Evo Psych guy to <laughs> go. I mean, it's the same reason why, and it's the kind of fundamental contradiction, I think, of, you know, the art world under capitalism is that like when you have them being like the sole, um, you know, power brokers within um, the art world that, you know, just whether it's like those guys or some other guys, it's going to, like we said at the beginning of the previous episode, it's not necessarily about the individual people, like people rise and fall out of this class, but that class remains coherent and, you know, the same and functions as a coherent uh, class, regardless of who necessarily is in it and who is not at a given time. Right. And so, you know, the, um, the art world, which you could consider now bourgeois art, um, you know, is then kind of used as one of the institution's arms, uh, you know, for their express purposes, whether that's networking, whether that's, you know, printing a message, it revolves around them, right? Mm -hmm. Fine dining in New York, right, uh, revolves around them. Even the cool ones that are in downtown, I hate to say it, guys, yep. but like, you know, uh, those restaurants are not like, you know, really like making money on their own. They usually are, you know, seat funded because you go to these like, exclusive or cool restaurants um whether they're in downtown or in midtown and um that's a way where you can actually swing you know a nice dinner with a meeting right you're not necessarily mm -hmm. talking about the food there but it's the restaurant's probably propped up by either like finance capital or people who are you know like in that uh you know like ruling class in new york right and so yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, like, if you're an up-and-coming chef, right, who's trying to make it, you know, all this kind of stuff, you're going to be doing the private dinner clubs for wealthy, connected people, right? By doing that, you're now being introduced to those people who, yeah, maybe you're going to stake the funding for uh, Nobu or whatever dumb bullshit you're trying to put <laughs> up, right? You know, it's like... And this is how the world works. And the reason why it can work this way, I think sometimes people lose track of what capitalism is actually about and how it functions by wanting to create a supervillain narrative. But the reality of capitalism is the what makes it work is the money. Yep. Like money is taking social power and putting it into individuals' hands, right? This is Marx's sort of critique, right? And therefore, the person, the individual that wields it can wield powers very much outsized of themselves. And yep. You know, in so doing, everybody comes to to beg for the money, right? And in begging for the money, you now are part of that world, you know? And the person holding the capital gets to call the shots. And while that's obvious when you're being hired to work at McDonald's that you don't get to call <laughs> shots, it's sometimes less obvious in places that we don't that we like to pretend are outside of the economy, which is the yep, art world. That are um, exempt from yeah, like academia. The, yeah, it's yeah, such, academia, right? the art world, etc. Right, uh, and, like the restaurant world too. Yeah, and the thing is, nothing is exempt. Yeah, that's the actual reality. Now, to return to this question, I think some of the pushback that you get about discussing some of these things, which you know you get when you discuss about any sort of thing people like, is that people like it. 
you know, some people like abstract I will, expressionism. I will admit on record right now that I've always liked abstract expressionism. Like, I yeah. I mean, like, it's uh, it paid me when I actually learned that it was basically considered, <laughs> like, like free we, enterprise we art. We free enterprise art. Yeah, that, that really <laughs> my, takes my, the shine off, I gotta ooh, say. <laughs> God, man, it was brutal. It was really brutal. Uh, yeah. But... You know, like it's I I'm like for a reason. I really love stuff that is kind of more up for interpretation. It was like different. I, it's like something that like I felt like was just cool to look at. You know, mm-hmm. and um and I think that that's it, it, like you're kind of getting at Brian. I think that that is still okay to like. Yeah. There's a reason why people do like it, right? And you can't let the emotion of oh, but I like this. Like you know, therefore it can't be like a bad thing, or it can't have like unintended consequences or consequences that I didn't necessarily see because now this is a reflection on myself right you know it's like Mm -hmm. there's uh, you can make this critique really about uh, I'm sure that your some of your favorite films probably have some you know interesting backstory or like where their funding comes from etc right like this Mm -hmm. is just the nature of capitalism and like how art is leveraged under capitalism is exactly that right it's like you know it's gonna probably be used for various you know means there's probably a reason why it's in front of all of us in the first place uh Mm -hmm. which we don't necessarily think about right because uh, capital is so abstracted but if it's in front of everyone at once i mean there's a good chance that uh you know uh people in power probably made it that way it didn't just happen on its own yeah somebody made that choice Right. That's that's why you're seeing it is because somebody who had the resources made the choice to make it available. Right. And the thing is, is that it's, you know, not sound like dumb Twitter shit, but it's like it's okay to like things. Right. You know, but I mean, you should fold in these discussions about how this stuff came about and things like that. You should fold that into your, you know, your knowledge of the subject, your criticism, of the subject, etc. Like, you know. I enjoy, uh, I really like H.P. Lovecraft, uh, but that doesn't mean I can hide from the fact that he, uh, let's just say, liked to say certain things, right? Yeah, <laughs> And right. some stories are very clearly about those certain things. Yeah. And, and it's just like, you know, hiding from that fact doesn't make it go away, right? It's and, actually beneficial for the express purpose because it then yeah. like conflates yourself and your own individual morals with something that's completely outside of your control. I think like the yeah. better approach especially when enjoying art under capitalism is to again i think this is something that we just need generally just need back is media literacy right critically analyzing something right um enjoying something but also acknowledging context of maybe why this is even in front of you in the first place why i'm even attracted to this specific thing right maybe why this can be used for the state department for other means. Right. And then, you know, factoring that in while, you know, acknowledging that, yeah, sure. Maybe this is still like a good painting, you know, like, yeah. uh, yeah. And from the beginning, understanding that you are engaging in a commodity exchange, right. And that your appreciation of a commodity should not be self-defining. Right. You should never find meaning in like uh, the cycles of commodity. Yeah. The commodity exists outside of you. All right. And it's like in from there, you can then have a deeper and better appreciation and critique of said commodity. Right. So look, guys, you can watch Roman Polanski movies. It's fine. It doesn't make you a bad person. 
But at the same time, you know, I mean, probably should know where they came from. Yeah, <laughs> like, probably shouldn't yeah. deny what Roman Polanski did or, yeah. uh, you know. Yeah, don't defend his hot tub <laughs> antics, all right? Yeah. You know, and, you know, we could do that for any number of, uh, you know, I mean, God, Hollywood, just name a director. But oh like, but the thing, too, is like uh, pretending like you're a good moral person because you don't engage these pieces of art or whatever, too, is like that that's not the quick ticket to sainthood either right yeah like, yeah that's not that's not the you flex know. you think it is yeah again you gotta develop yourself all right yeah <laughs> <laughs> there isn't one blockbuster scam at the center of the art market rather it's a market composed of scams for example, counterintuitively, wealthy individuals can turn a profit by donating art. It's rather simple. In the US, when one donates artwork to a nonprofit museum, they get a tax write off. That's to say, if someone donates a painting worth $10 million, they don't have to pay taxes on $10 million of income, which, in theory, would save them about $4 million. Of course, given the difficulties in determining art's worth, the IRS requires expensive artwork to be professionally appraised prior to a write-off. Considering all the aforementioned market conditions, though, it's not tough to manipulate an appraisal to go one's way. Of the hundreds of thousands of artworks donated each year, the IRS audits only a couple hundred, but even those few paint a stark picture. In 2018 and 2019, about a third of audited artwork was found to be overvalued in its appraisal by an average of 38%. In fact, overall, only 42% of artwork was found to have been appraised correctly, in part thanks to the competing pressure for some to undervalue their work when it's received through inheritance in order to reduce the estate taxes paid upon transfer of ownership. So, a rich person could buy a piece of art for $4 million, let it appreciate over a few years, shop around for a favorable appraisal, overstate its value, rely on the fact that the IRS only audits a tiny percentage of prices, donate the art for $10 million, and they'll have already broken even. It doesn't take much for the percentage a wealthy person will save in taxes to eclipse their original purchase price. As a cherry on top, of course. The presence of an artist's work in a museum is known to inflate the value of their other art, so if a wealthy person owns a collection of a given artist's work, as is common, donations earn them further money through the effect it has on the rest of their collection. In aggregate, the situation is this. It was created by rich people for rich people, so it suits their needs. Whether it's tax avoidance, money laundering, or simple price fixing, the art market enables all. I'm not a flasher in a raincoat I'm not a dirty old man I'm not gonna snatch you from your mother I'm an art lover Come to daddy All right, well, from the art world to the modern world, um, in every sense, uh, let's talk a little bit about Nazis. <laughs> oh, yeah, that thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It has really been unavoidable. So Moody and I, we recorded, you know, when you guys hear episode 17, we recorded that a week, uh, maybe plus prior uh, from when it came out. 
And we had that discussion about the rewriting of World War II, uh, essentially rehabilitating the Nazis, making the crimes of the Nazis the crimes of the Soviet Union. And this is definitely something that's been going on for decades, uh, literally since 1945. Um, but oh man, in the last week, have, Ooh, uh, have we been given some good examples? And, you know, again, we're recording this before it comes out, right? So this is... Uh, this is old Twitter stuff that we're going to be talking about here. But we had political scientists, American political scientists who studies the Soviet Union and modern Russia, Michael McFaul, uh, go on, I think it was MSNBC, and go on this whole thing about the the real difference between Putin and Hitler, which is always a really good start to any discussion. Yeah, I, I love that Like the former ambassador to Russia from the U.S. is, ta- is, is yeah. opening with that frame. Very yeah, cool. Amazing. Uh, was that <laughs> Putin is actually worse than Hitler because when Putin goes into Ukraine, he's killing ethnic Russians, whereas Hitler never killed ethnic Germans. And this was oh, so, allowed to okay. be. This was first off allowed to be go without comment on MSNBC from anybody. They're just like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, just nodding their heads like cocker spaniels. Uh, <laughs> but of course, on Twitter, people were maybe a little more upset. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wonder why someone would be upset when you claim that the ethnic Jews are not actually German. Basically, the entire premise of like Hitler's thesis and like why Nazism was Nazism was like a direct denial of <laughs> yep. of Jewish people being like German or like Aryan, etc. Right? Like, <laughs> basically, for McFall's comment to be true, you would have to accept Hitler's racial cosmology. Yeah. Right? Like, like yeah. Otherwise, it's very on its face clearly it not true make sense otherwise plenty of germans who happen to be jewish germans who happen to be roma germans who happen to be communists germans who happen to be plenty of germans were murdered by the fucking third reich right yeah uh that was the whole point actually first victims in fact um (laughs) and the only way you could claim that wasn't true is again if you buy into and accept (laughs) at face value the (laughs) nationalist racial cosmology of nazism now you could say well maybe we're being unfair to michael mcfall he uh you know he did uh use the uh the out that you use on media programs of saying some people say before mm. he made the comment you know oh well never mind never Which, mind classically some yeah. people are like uh look guys he was just saying that some people say that and it's like yeah some people michael mcfall says that yeah but, some people me and my friends but hilariously <laughs> just in case you were confused <laughs> just in case you were confused when people brought this up to him on Twitter, we're like, you know, the, what you said is like literally just Nazi apologism. Michael Fogg was like, look, he's like, look, I meant ethnic Germans, okay, not Jews, all right? Like, you know, the Jews are something else, right? Like, basically, was just digging the hole deeper and deeper, right? And it's like, reaffirming. Okay, so this isn't, yeah, this like isn't some people say. Yeah, this yeah. is what McFall believes, right? It's not what some people say. Now, uh, McFall is a political scientist out of Stanford. Uh, he's an important political scientist in the field of modern Russia, um, which means that when I was taking political science classes at Texas Tech, uh, and my advisor was a Russianist, he did modern Russia, uh, we read a lot of Michael McFall, and my advisor knew Michael McFall personally. Wow. <laughs> and let me just say for personal uh, you know, conversations, hey, dead knowledge, uh, Michael McFall's a fucking moron. All right. That's one thing you have to understand about him. He's the dumbest boy alive. Um, just 
personally on a like person to person basis a <laughs> fucking idiot right <laughs> um which says something about how he got to the position he got into <laughs> right <laughs> and uh it also it says something too about this project of rehabbing the nazis i don't think that michael mcfall when he goes home is like got an altar to hitler in his living room and is like yes yes master i i, I yeah, did the, he I, does the salute. I spread the word for you yeah and like does a little yeah. nazi salute and stuff what he does is he's like a, a little tape recorder that just hears the conversations around him in academia in the state department etc and then just repeats it right he, that's how he got to where he is, is he just repeats what he knows people want to want to hear which says something about the ambient temperature <laughs> regarding the historical memory of nazism now this was then uh because obviously uh people then had to comment on michael's comment uh anders osland who uh if you guys want to get to know him uh you should go back and listen to our episode about the fall of the soviet union we'll put a link uh in here you can listen to he is one of the main economist architects of the dismantling of the soviet union uh who uh, hilariously did say that we had to bring a certain proper elitism into russia and therefore like impoverishing the entire population was a critical part of that you know like you have yeah. to make people poor to make capitalism work otherwise why would it work you know um <laughs> a really ghoulish figure when you talk about people who like are actual monsters Anders oslin's right there uh he decided to pop in on this whole conversation and basically like no he's right like uh not only did hitler not kill any ethnic uh, germans or anything like that <laughs> but also like you know putin he's using chemical weapons in eastern europe which is like you know questionable but whatever uh hitler never did that this is like a whole like just mad libs of of like different accusations on i don't know like uh targets of the state you know yeah. like Mm, he used chemical weapons against his own people sis he's he's canceled like where did, where have you heard that one before right like i mean like let's think about the iraq war the gulf war uh etc um you know and then also uh while kind of like reimposing like nazi thought basically like yeah. implying that nazi thought is actually like the true um it the racial ideas of nazism are indeed fact right uh yeah. and I think that goes to show that, you know, regardless of whether the Nazis like back in uh, World War II were the enemy of the U.S., um, it took really no time, like since the Cold War to now, to basically completely rehabilitate Nazism and mm-hmm. use it for our own benefit, right? Yeah. Our being the state's benefit. Yeah, and I mean, you know, as people pointed out to old Anders, and before you like think Anders is a nobody or whatever, I mean, he's like the most important member of the Atlantic Council. Like, I mean, this guy is, he's a somebody, let me tell you. When you talk about members of the ruling class, this guy's there. Um, but he, uh, you know, there's basically like two interpretations of his tweets, which is, A, yeah, he didn't use chemical weapons because the Holocaust like uh, didn't happen or the Germans didn't do it, right? Which is the new, this is the new consensus we're, con- we're actually congealing around, which is the Germans didn't do the Holocaust. Um, or that he is buying the uh, long-held neo-Nazi like line that has been pushed by, um, oh, uh, Brit- there's a British historian who's really big on this one, David, whatever. But anyways, uh, 
that basically uh no the like gas and stuff in the gas chambers those were just delousing units and that that none of that's real you know uh so either a the soviet union did the holocaust which is the line that we're the american historians are now congealing around or <laughs> b uh you know the holocaust just never happened period <laughs> no yeah and two explicit neo-nazi ideas i think yeah yeah, explicitly, right? And and I think this gets us into this project. I mean, we talked a little bit about in the episode about, you know, how German generals were sort of allowed to rewrite the history of World War II with obvious consequences. And the creation of this sort of lost cause mythology around Nazi Germany. And I argue that what we're seeing in real time is exactly what happened with the Civil War and the memory of the Civil War with the Dunning School which is something that we all knew at the time in 1945, everybody knew that capitalism was at the heart of the Nazi war machine. The capitalism had brought this disaster to Europe. Everybody knew that the Nazi war machine had killed all these people. Everybody knew they were the, they were the uh, unequivocal bad guys of history, right? Upholding Mm -hmm. abhorrent ideas whose vision of the future was abhorrent itself right explicit anti-communist explicitly pro-capitalist in its views um you know like leverage that that was like what basically fascism is like in episode 14 we discuss what fascism is it is basically capitalism in uh in decline right um and you know in this case the state on the ascendant of capitalism world war Mm -hmm. one was all about capitalism right on basically all sides Mm -hmm. uh which germany again was the uh one of the you know belligerents in that yeah and i think the thing is is that if you even looking at uh the nazis sort of racial cosmology which we sometimes get lost and we say oh they were just racist if you look through like mein kampf when hitler talks about the jews and why the jews are bad his comment is always because they're communists they're the ones who are doing the communist plot right and you start to realize like the race issue has a politics behind it like it serves a political function by the way just as the race issue in the civil war did right like Mm -hmm. it wasn't Mm -hmm. just that people in the south were like oh those people look different from us they should be slaves those that slavery had a political economic function for the south that they didn't want to get rid of, right? You know, it maintained a way of living for a very small group of very wealthy people, right? Who controlled every aspect of Southern politics and economics. And, you know, at the end of the Civil War, everybody understood that this was about slavery and that slavery is about economics. That's about the Southern ruling class, right? All this kind of stuff. Everybody got that, right? And then through time and pressure, something that would have been unimaginable to somebody in 1865 happen which is they change that narrative right dramatically yeah and all of a sudden the south became uh just tragic heroes in a inevitable conflict and we are doing the same thing around nazi germany and as insane as it sounds all i can do is point to the evidence and say look at how these people talk these are the people who make decisions in america look at how they talk do you think that they learned anything from the 1940s yeah you know and you know to kind of like walk through some of this stuff you know the basic move here the chess move that they are banking on is to go from this idea of first promoting the idea that the soviet union was an equal partner in the holocaust right with 
the Nazis. To then Again, arguing, a, a fact that would be unimaginable to someone who actually yeah. lived through World War II or even shortly thereafter. You would have been laughed out of any room in 1945 yeah. for saying this, right? Remember what, like 40 million people in yeah. the USSR <laughs> died fighting Nazism explicitly? Well, and also the Soviet Union was the 20 only... 20 million? Human. I don't know. Yeah, it's 20 million. And the thing is, the Soviet Union is also the only country that openly acknowledged the Holocaust as it happened. They're the people who liberated all the camps, right? You know, I mean, like, you know, that and everybody understood, too, that the Holocaust was aimed at the Soviet Union, right? Like, yeah. the, again, the, the anti-Semitism was aimed at the Soviet Union, right? Um, now, you know, so we went from this, like the move has been to go from trying to claim that the Soviet Union and, uh, Nazi Germany are equal partners, this idea that the Soviet Union is actually the primary mover behind the Holocaust. And there's, there's a lot of stuff that we've seen over the decades that kind of leans into this. I mean, the first big American acknowledgement of this was with Ronald Reagan when he went to Germany and he laid a wreath at Bitburg Cemetery at the, you know, he laid a wreath for the dead SS officers of the Nazi <laughs> war machine. Jesus. And when people asked him about this, Reagan just very straight facedly said, you know, those SS soldiers were victims of the Nazis too. <laughs> and, you know, you might say, well, this is just the dying brain of a fucking weird freak. Dementia-ridden old man. But let me posit that Jimmy Carter, when asked why the U.S. wouldn't pay uh, reparations, which they had agreed to, by the way, in the Paris Accords, to the Vietnamese government, uh, Jimmy Carter said, well, the United States was just as big a victim of the Vietnam War as Vietnam was, Right. And Reagan is basically just repeating Carter's words, right? And this is not an innocent confusion. This is purposefully mixing up perpetrators and victims. Yeah. You know, the United States was not a mutual victim of the Vietnam War by any measurement, right? By numbers of dead, injured, etc. But also, the United States did it. <laughs> like, you don't yeah. get to be a mutual victim when you are the aggressor in the war, right? And the same with the Nazis, right? But this was part of a general program. Now, you know, it's the thing to understand about World War II is that as much as it was a war between nation states, it was a war about politics, right? And so every country the Nazis went into, reactionaries flocked to the Nazi cause. They formed whole divisions of like Ukrainians and Estonians and things like that, uh, who joined the Nazi cause because they were anti-communists. They hated fucking communists, right? They hated Jews. They thought Jews were the architect of the thing. They hated the Roma. They hated the Polish of their U Ukrainian, right? Everybody that had a racist axe to grind joined, right? And after the war ended, those people didn't drop their racist axes, right? And so the U.S. went in and gave those people money. They gave them guns. They be, they connected them to an intelligence network that the CIA built all through Eastern Europe. And they kept these organizations alive, right? The people who fled Europe because they were afraid the Soviet Union would try them for fucking war crimes they kept these alive in Western countries. So we talked about books like Black Deeds of the Kremlin that came out in the 1950s. There's also the Ukrainian-funded Robert Conquest book, uh, Harvest of Sorrow, that was funded by the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, right? Which basically, you know, is the origin of, like, the Holodomor myth, which I, I hate to tell you guys, that shit's made up. Like, I'm not saying people didn't die in a famine, but the idea that this was the equivalent of the Holocaust or was a 
conscious event like the Holocaust was, a conscious creation of politics. It's like, you should think about why they push that. <laughs> you know, yeah. a group like the OUN who killed hundreds of thousands of Jews during the war, why do you think they would want to downplay the Holocaust and play up another thing that makes them the victims? Right. You know, um, but yeah, like in, you know, Robert Conquest's book in the 90s, Reflections on a Ravaged Country, he took it a step further and was like, no, the Soviet Union is the reason why Nazi Germany existed. It's the reason why the Holocaust happened. Therefore, you know, even if the Nazis killed all those people, it really is the Soviet Union's fault. If they just hadn't existed, then the Nazis just wouldn't have had to do that. You know, if my wife just, just didn't talk so much, I wouldn't have to beat her or whatever. You yeah, know, I mean, this yeah. is like classic fucking horse shit. Uh, Timothy Snyder's, you know, story in Timothy Snyder's Bloodlands basically has become the historical work that tries to tie this all together and be like, oh, yes, like uh, the Germans were afraid of Soviet aggressiveness and so therefore led them to this war of annihilation that if you really think about it, it's kind of the Soviet Union's fault. Also, uh, a lot of those people who died in Eastern Europe, who we know the Nazis killed, uh, let's just say that the Soviet Union did it. Sure. Why not? Let's put it, let's put a little exclamation mark on that. You know, and it, it really is this insane thing. And I, and when you, when you talk about it to people, it makes you sound like a crazy person, but I mean, again, let's just take a look at what's happening in Eastern Europe after the fall of the Soviet Union, when all these little individual countries, their nationalist movements grabbed hold of politics in these countries to get an idea of what the nature of nationalism is in these places. In Ukraine, of course, we talk about groups like the Azov Battalion, but we forget that like the entire country celebrates Stepan Bandera as their <laughs> country's founding father. Stepan Bandera filled concentration camps full of Poles and Jews and Roma, you know, suspected communists. Seven Dare is a, I mean, this is again, I, you know, because the work gets overused so much, I can't express this stuff, a literal fucking Nazi, you know, it is considered the father of modern Ukraine. Think about that. Hmm. Marshall Pilsudski in Poland, right? When everybody's favorite fucking dipshit, Lech Walesa, forms Solidarity, Solidarność in Poland, one of their first big acts was to rename in 1981 the Lenin shipyards. They renamed them to the Pilsudski shipyards, right? And oh. held up giant images of Marshall Pilsudski. Pilsudski, who some, somehow escapes criticism because he just died of being a fat piece of shit in 1938, I believe. Uh, Pilsudski is a fucking fascist. Goebbels credited him with creating the first concentration camp in Europe. Like, he's a fucking fascist. He was part of the Home Army fascists, right? Who, by the way, when the Warsaw Ghetto was being cleared out, the, the Polish Home Army, who everybody has a fucking boner over now, specifically told all their people who stayed in Poland, which was very few because most of them just ran away, but <laughs> specifically told them, don't bother trying to protect the Warsaw Ghetto. It's just full of curly-headed Benjamins. Let them die. Oh. Direct fucking quote, right? They're full of curly-headed ben Benjamins. Let them die. That's who you're defending. Actual fucking Nazis. In Latvia, Herbertus uh, Kukers, who's considered a national hero, right? Not because he was a pilot during World War I, but because he was a member of the RS Commando, a group that killed 60,000 Jews filling the concentration camps for the Nazis, right? You know, here's a, uh, a great quote from an article on him. 
He has subsequently enjoyed some rehabilitation in Latvia. In 2014, a musical entitled Kikirs, about Herbert's Kikirs, debuted in his hometown. The musical offered the viewers a question, hero or murderer? But the answer was hardly ambiguous. <laughs> he was represented <laughs> as a courageous aviator, an unfortunate victim of the chaos and violence of World War II. Oh, man. They wrote their own version of Hamilton about a guy like singing songs about filling camps full of fucking, you know, filling death camps, right? Again, I mean, in Romania, Marshal Ion Antonescu is now a national hero. He was the puppet ruler that the Nazis put in charge of Romania, who just marched hundreds of thousands of Roma and Jews to the death camps. In Croatia, Archbishop, Archbishop Aloysius Stepanak is now a national hero figure of the country. He literally oversaw the Catholic churches as Archbishop in uh, Yugos uh, you know, a region of Yugoslavia. He oversaw the Catholic Church's cooperation with the fucking Ustasi, who are like the fucking murderers of Europe. You know? yeah. And he gets rehabilitated by the Catholic Church. But, you know, Pope John Paul II in 1998 beatifies him, makes him a martyr of the church because he died under house arrest under Tito. You know? Fucking Archbishop Stepanak deserved more than dying under house arrest comfortably in his late 60s. You know, he should have been at the end of a fucking rope at the end of that fucking war. Yeah, for real. And now he's an official martyr of the Catholic Church, a national hero, right? There was, by the way, the love of the Ustasi in Croatia has led to them in 2016. They put up a fucking placard on the gates of Croatia's largest concentration camp celebrating the Ustasi's legacy, right? complete with the group's salute you know hail to you know united croatia or whatever right the united croat they put that on the gates of a concentration camp that the ustasi filled and staffed <laughs> what? you know now this gets to the point of things too like monuments all over eastern europe oh god yeah monuments to former camps former death sites right places where mass killings occurred and bodies you know they're now just ma giant mass graves during the soviet union monuments were put up acknowledging the fascist role and the creation of this stuff those plaques have largely been replaced now basically blaming the soviet union or explaining why the ustasi had to do it right you know all this kind of stuff uh i remember in uh in 2009 uh, you know a uh, friend of the show, uh, Marianne Henderson, was uh, at a, a history, you know, conference little speak out or whatever, right? You know, uh, Penny Von Eschen was doing a little tour, who's an American historian, and was giving this whole big lecture about like, oh, you know, in Eastern Europe, they're like, they're really starting to cope with their Soviet past by building these museums of, you know, uh, Soviet, uh, you know, uh, uh, violence or whatever in Eastern Europe. And, uh, you know, they're taking hold of the fact that, I mean, <laughs> you know, a lot of the crimes from World War II are actually the Soviets' fault and all this kind of <laughs> stuff, right? And at one point, Marianne had asked, you know, Von Eschen had been like, hey, uh, isn't it weird that these museums you keep showing us, like, all the languages of them are, like, English and German? Like, every all the signs are in English and German? Like, maybe this isn't necessarily 100% for the people of these countries, but yeah. for a West that is seeking a very particular type of nationalism in eastern europe uh, something that apparently had never occurred to penny von eschen right <laughs> she was on this tour for a book she's writing that that book apparently just came out like a month ago i'm gonna have to get it and see if uh, this comment makes it into the book uh we'll see <laughs>
But, you know, I mean, I think people really underestimate the power of this offensive um, to the point that uh, the U.S. Holocaust Museum in the mid aughts I think it's about 2005, uh, literally put <laughs> this guy, Merrick, and I'm going to fuck this guy's name up, but Merrick John Chattakiewicz or whatever, who gives a shit, um, they they gave him a seat on the at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial in D.C. Uh, you know, a board seat, right? This guy literally says that basically the Polish nationalists did nothing wrong, you know, uh, even when it came to the killing of Jews in Poland, because the Jews were communists, and after all, the communists were the enemies of Polish nationalism, right? And in fact, the only real crime was the murder of uh, Polish nationalists by the Soviet Union, right? But Jews murdered by the same Polish, who cares, right? That guy sat on the board of the U.S. Holocaust Museum in D.C., right? What the fuck? You know, I mean, we don't even have to get into the historical strike, which which literally means the historian's fight in Germany in the 1980s, which was launched by historian Ernst Nolte who basically argued that, yeah, maybe Germany did some, maybe Germany did some bad things in the forties, but it was all in response to the existence of the Soviet union and therefore can't be put at Germany's door, right? This is the fault of the Soviet union. And now, you know, Ernst Nolte's position was based off a, burgeoning german nationalism that was trying to reclaim in response to the 60s when uh young radicals in germany and things like that forced a reopening of trials of german war criminals within the country itself this was a response that say no close the trials again like germany can't be a strong nation if we pretend like the not like nazism was bad (laughs) we're gonna have to embrace it on some level you know or at very least not talk about it anymore so this this thing that I've laid out, right? I, hopefully, I've I've maybe made the point that this isn't cranks, like yeah, that this thing we're seeing a Dunning school for World War II is real. It's happening. It, we're not only is it happening; it's basically happened, right? And I think it points to several problems. One is which apparently you know capitalist nationalism it seemingly can only exist under a fascist context, <laughs> or at the very least yeah. is extremely at home with it right but it also points to the fact that as the u.s and russia engage in inter-imperialist rivalries in eastern europe when the u.s is pushing its own agenda via various nationalist groups in countries like uh, pick one out of the blue ukraine the kind of people they're gonna pick and uplift and arm and put their thumb on the scale for right as official leaders of these countries are gonna be of this bent right i just have a suspicion that giving these people a lot of guns and permission to kill is probably not going to be good in the long term now yeah probably not that's not to say that the Russians are innocent in this because Putin's doing the exact same thing <laughs> just from the <laughs> other side. But I mean, what country do you live in, dumbass? Like, yeah. you know, like, you know, uh, the reason why they want you to complain about Putin is because they know that's like 
totally ineffective and you're just tilting at windmills right and it helps the u.s you know national agenda right but like both these sides arming far-right nationalists is going to result in a disaster for people in ukraine for actual living human beings who are going to bear the brunt of this this is this is going to be a disaster and it's and i I just don't know how there's not a personal toll in the u.s for this either upholding all of this stuff i mean donald trump didn't create fascism in america like all these weird freaks who are like open nazis now are not a product of donald trump yeah they're far more product of what we're talking about right now than donald trump you know and kind of like it's it's fun to be mad at jackson pollock and call him an op because if we just uh if we just kill the villain in our head of jackson pollock it it, it you know all <laughs> of a sudden the the world of uh arts and letters gets saved right for good politics yeah. versus bad politics it's the meme society of jackson pollock got got killed <laughs> yeah and if we kill the <laughs> and it's demon- like a it's like a utopian like society where everything is just very technologically advanced like that's the that's the like fantasy right yeah, yeah. And if we kill the demon in our head that is Donald Trump or whatever, and this is, I mean, like, liberals are very explicit about this, the racism will go away. Yeah. Right? The the violence, the desire, I mean, fascism is more than just racism. I mean, fascism is a an idea of social organization, right? A violent reorganizing of the hierarchy of society, right? And, um, you know, waving away donald trump or whatever donald trump didn't create that and waving away won't make it go away right you know this is a project where you the united states has pretty explicitly tied a lot of national identities a lot of political identities to this project meaning that for capitalism to succeed at this point these projects have to succeed on some level and that is uh that should be appropriately terrifying actually yeah um well shit that sucked that's a real bummer to end on uh (laughs) we should talk about we should review the kanye album in relationship to state department uh goals yeah yeah (laughs) okay yeah let's let's do let's do that (laughs) yeah i mean the shit sucks it's a fucking bummer um you know a lot of pieces that we talked about in this episode are coming together in a very specific crisis happening literally right now which is Mm -hmm. uh the ways in which the u.s state has made people very comfortable with the concept of nuclear war which is really terrifying and the ways in which uh we've connected nationalism to fascism in such a such a uh like i mean concrete way i these are scary times i think it's the first time in my life where i've been like genuinely concerned about like generally a little terrified about what the future has um and you know and i mean if you want to put another point on that like we just watched a million people die from covid in this country in a state do nothing about it and in fact everybody's become cheerleaders for the deaths like whether you're Mm -hmm. a conservative who just is like oh that's the fault of lib mayors and you know the big cities right um uh, so good, you know, if all those people die, or if you're a dumb lib like my dad, who's like, good, it'll kill all the stupid people. Everybody's yeah, cheering. maybe we'll we won't have a Republican president ever again. They're yeah. just doing it to their own people. Yeah, because nothing bad psychologically can happen to a country if you just 
pointlessly kill millions of people within that country uh, for no discernible reason or anything like that, right? Uh, World War One had zero impact on the countries that participated in it. Yeah. <laughs> it definitely didn't create a legions of psychopaths. Um, yeah, did not create uh, like set countries down like an irreversible path um, yeah. <laughs> that they're still on today, right? And you know, I mean, not to say that like COVID and World War One are the exact same thing, but it's like the the psychological effect i mean this belief that you can just kill all these people and do nothing and blame them for their deaths or whatever and it's not going to have a psychological impact on the people in the united states or that this whole fucking idiot charade we're playing out in ukraine where we're pretending like uh, world war three is a good idea like that this isn't going to have a psychological effect on people i mean you know this is historically how bad things happen yeah (laughs) Yeah, I remember when we were reading um, Dot's book, and we were we were expressing these concerns on a more on an earlier level than it is now, and it's really surreal that just one month later, I remember like what right as we got finished, it was kind of the same analysis except for the war uh, with Russia and Ukraine um, just uh, hasn't like happened yet. But we were even connecting those dots before, being like, well, you know, when COVID. The, the it creates certain conditions that you know when we're actually now studying fascism it's like holy shit this is like how the stage gets set for something on such a mass scale um like fascism to actually rise right and mm-hmm. now kind of seeing it play out with when I mean, you said like nationalism getting connected to fascism but i think it's more about people actually especially like um in the states being comfortable with the idea of nationalism being good and therefore fascism being necessary yeah. right um to protect this nationalism ambiently just like whatever it is no matter what context this nationalism is uh you know uh that is extremely eyebrow raising and concerning and it's crazy because it just kind of feels so out of control when you just see people suddenly like the dominant like media narratives becoming so bloodthirsty and people actually, you know, buying it with full force, you know, it's, uh, it's, um, it's surreal. It's surreal to watch. And I don't, and there's no real clear answer to it other than, you know, getting out there and, and talking to people. Um, but you know, that's, that's, it's, it's bleak to, to see. Yeah. I, Yeah. And I mean, this is the product of not organizing, right? So the only answer is you got to organize. And, yep. you know, um, look, I mean, this is like a lot of depressing shit. It's a lot of bleak shit. Uh, but uh, you got to set that aside and and uh, get out there. I mean, that's just really all there is at this point. Yeah, you know? straight up. Even if the world's going to end, you got to do something to push back against it. You got you to gotta at least try. Yeah, you gotta at least try and go beyond just just shouting into a void. I promise you, it would be. It's gonna feel a lot better. All right. Well, on that cheery note, we'll be back um, next week to talk about the Cold War abroad, which I'm sure will be another cheery episode. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But uh, so look forward to that, and we'll see you all next time. All right. Bye. to a land 
get rid of this abusive uh, government. It's free real estate. dicen que siempre podrán saltar el muro por muy alto que sea. Ellos, junto a activistas, aseguran que la valla es el peor legado de la administración Trump y que no ha disminuido los cruces de 